Hi, this is Richard, host of the Zero to Something podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in this week. On today's episode, I was lucky enough to speak to Rory Sutherland, who is the author of a book called Alchemy. He's also the vice chairman of Ogilvy. But those two titles barely scratch the surface of Rory, who is possibly one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to, who has the kind of most wide-ranging mind. And as you'll hear, it is impossible to keep him on a point, but in the most incredibly entertaining way. I had such fun chatting to him. I learned a lot. I hope you learn a lot as well. I definitely buy his book. You can find the title in the show notes. If you want to find more about Rory, his Twitter is at Rory Sutherland. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, mine is at underscore R Howard. If you like the episode, please subscribe. Please rate and review it on iTunes. Every review makes a difference. So five stars, five stars. Thank you very much. And on to the episode. So the, the first question I usually ask is, you know, kind of, do you know what drives you or is there just this kind of voice at the back of your head that makes you do the things that you do? But having read Alchemy, I actually think I might have an idea of what drives uh, you, Rory Sutherland. And uh, and you you put it in the book because you said you're nosy. Well, I did. Number one, you said you're nosy. Um, so you said it yourself. But I think you're also, you're interested in the reality of why people do what they actually do rather than what they, rather yeah. than seeing like that's why they did it. There have been a few books which I'll happily recommend. There's The Elephant in the Brain by Kevin Simler and Robin Hansen, which is the essential thing that what we care about isn't what we tend to measure, actually. Yeah. You know, so a hospital will tend to measure number of operations processed, you know, it'll it'll measure health outcomes. Whereas yeah. what the what the elephant cares about in our mind is how we feel we've been treated. Yeah. And I mean treated in a human sense, not a medical sense. Don Hoffman's book, The Case Against Reality, simply makes the case of, which I make in the alchemy, that alchemy did come out first. I didn't nick this, but it, it, he <laughs> makes the case far more scientifically than I do, that evolutionary epistemology is the foundation of evolutionary psychology in a sense, because we haven't evolved to perceive the world objectively, because accuracy is less important than fitness in terms of successful reproduction and growth yeah. of any species. And so if evolution has to make the decision, do I trade off 3% of accuracy for 1% gain in fitness, uh, it'll make that trade off every day of the week. And so accuracy, the idea that we actually care about, I mean, I, I, well, I've spent quite a lot of my time in marketing arguing about our perception of time is far more important than the measured duration of time in almost yeah. any experience. I, I became accidentally famous talking about the Eurostar, where I said, look, if you make the time on board fun, it's not worth spending six billion pounds making the journey 35 minutes shorter because people are actually enjoying it. You know, yeah. now in 1890, it was probably reasonable to assume that time spent on a train in, provided less utility or enjoyment than time spent stationary. Technology probably mm. means that assumption is completely wrong. No one advertises a cruise ship on how fast it is, after all. Yeah, I watched the TED talk that you did, and you were saying, you know, we spent six billion pounds making the Eurostar 35 or 40 minutes faster, but if you spent three billion of that and you had every supermodel in the world serving you yep, canopies... Yeah, handing out free shattered Petrus. Male and female yeah. supermodels serving free shattered Petrus, you could save five billion pounds. I, I mean, the interesting thing is that suggestion is viewed as ridiculous, yeah. even though, if you think about it conceptually, it's a perfectly reasonable solution to 
of the problem because that what Eurostar wanted people to do was to take the train rather than flying. And there, are, and let's face it, even when the train was slower than flying, people took the train because it was more pleasant. And you might argue, by the way, that actually, you know, the pain at air, the pain of airport security makes that case even more compelling without the Eurostar even having to do anything. And so, you know, the only point is to get people to choose the Eurostar. It's not to make, you know, choose the Eurostar over the air over the airport. Yeah. Okay. Now, any means. Now, my argument is that for high speed two, I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying we shouldn't do high speed two, although I'm skeptical. I'm not. I'm not a rejecter. I just think we haven't yeah. asked the right questions of it yet. Uh, I. I said there's this very simple solution which can increase capacity on the London, Birmingham, Manchester existing rail lines and can reduce journey time, which will cost you half a million pounds. Now, interestingly, overcrowding on that route and whether there's going to be overcrowding post the Zoom revolution is another matter of debate, by the way. Yeah. But overcrowding on that route is principally driven by pricing. It's driven by the fact that the, the first off-peak train of the day, in other words, the first time you can travel to Manchester by train without spending a billion pounds, is insanely overcrowded. Okay. Now you could just change the pricing thing. Now my solution was very simply: look, whenever I get a Manchester or Birmingham, I buy an advance ticket because I'm not an idiot, right? So I buy an advance first-class ticket, typically and technically an Ogilvy, where we're able to buy. I mean, technically we're not supposed to do that, but I tell them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> and and my argument is, I arrive from Kent. You have to arrive, given London's transport network, you have to arrive at Euston sort of 45 to 35 minutes before departure, on yeah. average to allow for the fact that you can't afford to miss your train. Now, in that time, two trains leave from London to Manchester, half empty, okay, yeah. 20 and 40 minutes before my designated train. Now, all you need is an app that says, actually, J8 is free on the train leaving 40 minutes before your train. Pay us a fiver, and you can, yeah. you can board early, right? And that will do two things. It will reduce journey time. Passenger journey time, not time spent on the train, but that's the best bit of the journey. That's not the bit you want to reduce. The bit of my journey time I want to reduce is the time I spend looking like a dickhead standing around Euston Station, right? Okay, it'll reduce journey time and it'll increase capacity because allowing people to go to use earlier, uh, it's called in economic terms, a, a rail seat is a perishable good. Okay. OK, allowing people to use perishable goods earlier is always good. EasyJet allow you to do this. If you turn up insanely early at an airport and there's an earlier flight back to Gatwick, they'll let you get on that if there are, no, if there are seats available, because it yeah. gives them a second chance then to cope with later demand on the on the seats you've vacated. So yeah. if you saw the, as I put it very simply, it, it's not an easy concept to grasp, but if you imagine the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy compound in Saigon at the end of the Vietnam War, right, they got as many people into each helicopter as they could. That's how you maximize capacity. They didn't say, no, no, sorry, mate, you're booked on the uh, 1120 departure and then leave with a helicopter half full, did they, right? That would have been really fucking enough. Okay. But, you, but you're taking off half empty. But yeah. your Titanic lifeboat, life uh, raft is only half full. Yeah, I know, but you're not booked on this one. You're booked yeah, on yeah. a later life. This is a stupid way to do it. Okay. So allowing people who've booked pre-booked tickets to travel earlier is good yield management practice. It's good efficiency practice. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't build high speed two, but you should do this before you make the case for high speed two. Okay. But the strange thing is, you can't get anybody to get their head around this. Yeah. And it taught me the most interesting thing about these ideas isn't just the ideas themselves, it's the extraordinary hostility they arouse. On your point, I think 
Israel is showing the way with regards to the vaccinations right now, right? It's organized yep. chaos, and, you know. Uh, is that interesting? And by the way, that if they've got vaccine left over, they'll just shout at the pizza yeah, guy, grab someone off the street. Yeah. Have you ever been to Israel? Bunch it's of times. I'm, I'm Jewish, so so so. Yeah. Oh right. Oh excellent. Yeah. Um, I, I went there and I was absolutely captivated by Israel because yeah. it was the first place I'd been to. The three most interesting places I've been to in the last five years: Israel, Iceland, and India. By a long way. Okay. And, and, and two years ago, I went to all three for the first time. And I'll tell you a really funny story about Israel, which fascinated me. Okay. Which was I, I'm there with a couple of people from the Israel Public Health okay. Department and a couple of people from Ogilvy Lead in Israel, which is Ogilvy's yep. affiliate office out there. I was talking about quitting smoking, and I said, funnily enough, I said the last cigarette I had, I bummed off Nigel Farage, and I said half jokingly, you know, I said it's actually funnily enough a really good way to quit smoking because if your last cigarette is bummed off someone really famous, right? Unless someone more famous offers me a cigarette, <laughs> I won't be able to tell that story anymore. Right. And I said as half as a joke, I said, you know, now if I said this in a British meeting or an American meeting, right, they were everybody would go, huh, Rory, very funny. Okay. I said, why don't you get celebrities to share a last cigarette with people? So they got a great story about their last cigarette, which makes it harder. So unless sort of Kate Moss turns up and starts handing out Marlboro Red in my flat, where you know, as PG Woodhouse (laughs) would say, the contingency is remote. You know, it's unlikely to happen. I'm probably not going to have a cigarette again in my life. And a part of that is I don't want to lose that little narrative, you see, yeah. that my last cigarette was bummed off Nigel Farage. You can guess the brand, can't you? Rothmans. <laughs> There's one guy who's the embodiment of Rothmans. Anyway, I said this in Israel, and the reaction between the agency guy and the public health guy, who I think is like, let's do that, yeah. right? Let's try it. And the, you're absolutely right, which is ingenious chaos is in, some time, is in many cases, actually, a more intelligent... It doesn't appeal... You know, it doesn't appeal to the neat technocratic mind who wants system and process. But sometimes the intelligence is distributed rather than centralized. And everybody educated, everybody who's a bureaucrat, everybody who's a management consultant has a natural aversion to distributed intelligence because they want the intelligence to be resident with them at the center as part of their need for control. This is why I'm I'm semi-Brexity, okay? Okay. I, I, I voted Remain. Actually, yeah. the reason I, I slightly changed sides because I was so horrified by the unthinking knee-jerk obsessions of, of obsessive Remainers that I yeah. kind of thought, I, actually, these people are nuts. They can't even see the trade-off that's yeah. present in being part of a supra-government. Or, and if you can't even see, in, in fairness to the Leavers, they acknowledged there was a downside to leaving, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. They at least were making a nuanced decision, whereas the people on the Remain side were basically ideologues. For and sure. so I've, you know, I was much more interested in the case for Leave because it was much more nuanced. And what was interesting about it is the people, I think there's a similarity between what I noticed is that really super creative or in or super intelligent people like complexity physicists and yeah. ordinary people, by which I mean the 52%, in a weird way have much more in common with each other in terms of their approach to things okay. than what you might call the semi-educated or the semi-intelligent. Because you know, people who really understand complexity understand that very messiness you just referred to, the organized yeah. chaos thing. Organized chaos can can work, and you know, Israel was showing yep. that with the vaccines. And the second thing, I think 
when you're pitching your idea to, to Eurostar or to uh, the government, they are so used to dealing with things in the hundreds of millions to the billions of pounds in terms of a solution that if you pitch them something and we see this in corporations as well if you you know if you're pitching it to like an enterprise buyer and your thing costs five thousand pounds and you they've got a budget of two hundred fifty thousand pounds they go well there must be something wrong you know similarly when government is used to dealing with hundreds of millions or billions of pounds you go i can solve your problem and it's going to cost you a couple hundred grand they go are you going to solve the problem? Or are we going to look stupid? And also, of course, you look for problems that are commensurate with the budget you've been given. Yeah. And so I have this very strange slogan in the behavioral science practice, which might be a topic for a future book, which is called, which is dare to be trivial, which is yeah. do not feel in a meeting that by suggesting a relatively trivial intervention, we always feel if we're, in a, I, I noticed this as soon as I went on the Ogilvy board, which is not, a, I mean, you know, it's not the board of GE or something, right? Yeah. But if ever you, you felt you had to suggest things that were kind of commensurate with general economic theory of incentives, because if you just said, for example, why don't we, I, I, it was a classic problem. We had a problem with people filling in timesheets. I mean, it's the most boring problem. And I said, well, look, if you gave them job names and if you gave people a piece of paper which was pre-populated with the jobs they were registered to work on, the problem would go away. But that was a psychological solution. And yeah. people looked at me as if this was slightly silly and, you know, grow up, we need it, you know. And then somebody even suggested, which was taken far more seriously, by the way, someone suggested, no, 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 if your timesheets are out of date, we deny you login rights to the company fucking email i said oh, that's great isn't it yeah so someone's really really busy what we'll do is we'll prevent them from working you know that's <laughs> such an elegant solution isn't it? but this was almost taken more seriously than the idea that you might make it just easy attractive social and timely or whatever it might be you yeah. know and and the extraordinary way in which we a we give preference to rational, naively rational solutions over more oblique creative solutions. Yeah. Secondly, if there's a, an explanation for something, we automatically privilege the rational explanation over the messier psychological ones. So at the very simplest level, right, your McCain oven chips, right? You you decide you're going to do a promotion, so you do 50% extra free, which, by the way, is more is much more appealing to consumers than 33% off the price, just so you know i think particularly with blokes by the way there's a particular thing blokes are less likely to have grown up with a household budget so blokes go for two for ones more than you know disproportionately because okay. the male brain goes 17 percent off warp boring you know blah 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 <laughs> i'll get one of those i'll get another one for free yeah, yeah. you know it's, I, I love marks and spencer's three for seven pounds because do you ever do yeah. the maths no of course you fucking don't no one adds <laughs> up 289 three pounds no one adds up the three items they go it's a deal. If I if I yeah. if I if I buy three of these, I get a deal. Now no one yeah. works out whether it's worth forty-seven pence or two pounds twenty. Three for seven pounds. Genius, right? Yeah. Real genius. You know, McDonald's wrap of the day. If I'm feeling a bit stingy, I'll sacrifice flavour for to save a pound. If I'm feeling a bit large, I'll choose the flavour I want and pay a pound extra. Lovely. Right. Yeah. I love this shit. Economists hate it. Right. But if now what will happen is you'll put a big 50 percent extra free on the bag and the bag's bigger and the sales will probably go up. OK. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you drop the price, sales might go down. I don't think that ever happens with 50 percent extra free, but I'm willing to be disabused. Right. Okay. Now, the sales will go up. 
And you'll say, well, we reduced the price of the fries by 33% and therefore sales went up. Your explanation for the increase in sales will be framed in economic terms and you'll privilege that explanation over anything else. Part of the increase in sales was probably that Tesco put in a more prominent position because it was a deal. There was a big rad flash on the packet so people noticed it. Some people who are totally unaware of the normal price of oven chips simply had to decide between three packets and chose the one for which there was a deal. Right. Right. There will be about 10 reasons why the sales went up, of which only one of them is the classically economic explanation that I want to spend less on oven chips. But the classically economic explanation, because it's the most rational as a kind of false deployment of Occam's razor, will trump all the other explanations. Yeah. And so we then go, yeah, if you drop the price, sales go up. Well, that it's true more often than not. I'm not a totally, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I, mean, I use economics, by the way, because it's, you know, self-interest and so forth is a motivating force. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who just you know, says that everything is the opposite. Uh, because, of course, actually, if economics were 100% wrong, it would actually be more useful than it currently is, because you could simply do the opposite. It's more complicated than that. But at the same time, the extent to which we privilege, and sure, you know, when High Speed 2 comes along, you know, High Speed 1, loads of people will say, well, of course, it's a faster train. So the high-speed one's not a bad idea, given that you had to have the tracks anyway. But, you know, everybody will talk about, you know, the benefits to speed. Well, you know, a large part of the benefits to high-speed one is it takes you into a completely different part of London from, you know, every other state. If you go any, any other way from Kent, you'll end up in South London, and here you end up in the north. You know, there are all sorts of things going on, but we we mistakenly, I think, look to the one that makes us look most. So it's a kind of it's a kind of intellectual machismo that the more I can deploy simplistic, ex, you know, mathematical explanations, the more credible I am. And I think machismo isn't a bad word because I think it is a male. I think it's a it's a put it this way. I think there is a very good case for board gender diversity on the grounds that I think women are less prone to this bias. If there's a reasonable number of females on a decision-making group, I think they're less, slightly less prone to this cut-and-dried bias, you might call it, than, than the worst kind of man is. I actually want to bring the discussion back a little bit just to yourself. Have you always thought differently? And have you realised you thought differently to, I guess, your, your peers and your siblings? Or was there kind of like a moment you know, profession where you're just like, oh, everything I thought before was wrong and I should actually start thinking kind of this way. Okay, it's really, really interesting. I think I was disposed to it okay. temperamentally. So humour is also a big part of it yeah. because humour is about noticing different things and and thinking about them in an unexpected way. There's an argument in evolutionary biology that humour is a kind of reward mechanism for creativity. You know, that, that, it, that there's something in there that the reason we enjoy jokes is because it's nature's incentive for us to yeah. both tell them and appreciate them. Yeah. And to, you know, and to, and to break out of a kind of, you know, it might be a kind of fire break to prevent us becoming entirely trapped in a single f- model of the world, for example. Yeah. Nobody really knows for sure. I mean, the evolutionary humour is like e- the evolutionary science of music. You know, there are lots of competing cases. And of course, they may not be mutually exclusive either. There could be multiple reasons. You know, it's, it only has to work at the aggregate level after all. But I've just been reading a John Cleese book, actually, which is on this, which is something like a short, cheerful book on creativity. And he makes the point that it, it can't be taught, but it can be developed in a way. Well, obviously, he's written a book, so it can be taught. <laughs> but his point is, his point is that 
no, nothing at school. Uh, he's, he doesn't remember anybody using the word creativity at school. He was a scientist at school and then changed to a lawyer at university. Everything was essentially designed to create a technocratic or bureaucratic elite class. And he discovered it through his accidental involvement in the footlights. And he got, in, he got involved in the footlights, not because he wanted to appear on stage. He was planning to become a lawyer, but just because he liked the people who yeah. participated in it. And then discovered a whole bunch of things, for example, the extraordinary un role the unconscious plays in creativity and that it's something that you can't grind out through effort of will. What you can do is not so much produce ideas, you can create the conditions in which your brain is receptive to them. And I've always had this vague idea, which is that to some extent, you don't actually have ideas, that they're drifting around. There are a few creative people in the ad industry who've said the same thing, that you don't so much have or create ideas, they're drifting around in the ether. And you almost like an angler, you somehow manage to catch one. Fishing is probably quite a good analogy for it because it requires yeah. patience. And there's a bit of an experiment he showed, which is that they found the most creative architects and another group of people who are designated by their peers the least creative architect and one of the one of the interesting qualities they found in the most creative architects which was entirely lacking in the least creative is they tended to play chicken with deadlines in other words okay. they did things at the last minute and there's a very good reason for that if you think about it in creativity the cut and dried person who wants to get something off their desk simply performs the rudimentary task as required by convention yeah. whereas the creative person knows the longer i leave this the more chance there is that something some new information emerges a new connection presents itself or i simply stumble on a solution which i was you know which was never part of my original intention i think that's really interesting and i guess so you you've always kind of felt more open-minded maybe than other people you grew up with or kind of went to university with yeah i mean i i i think i've always had i've always had a kind of mental pythonism okay. which is a love of you know the absurd or the incongruous yeah and you know i mean you know practical jokes i i like to say i'm the inventor of the we and I did this when I was only about ten or eleven. Uh, weirdly, I, I invented the game snakes. By the way, because okay. we had a very early computer at school, and I wasn't very good at coding, but there were a load of maths nerds who could do that stuff. And I basically conceptualised the game snakes, where ever lengthening snakes would yeah, chase yeah. chase themselves around a screen. Only reason everybody got a Nokia. 20 years ago. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we should have. I mean, Christ, we could have patented that, couldn't we? We could have got <laughs> one penny from every Nokia phone. And I also invented the practical joke where you send people you know a Christmas card from entirely imaginary people. So this was a friend of mine's parents where it was Clive Sue and baby Noreen. And we just sent a card, Clive Sue and baby Noreen. And the following year, someone else had sent us a Christmas card with a photo of their, you know, two-year-old daughter or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So we popped in the photograph. <laughs> and this was a glorious annual joke, the Christmas card from someone entirely imaginary. And it only turned out about seven years later, these people were practically insane, <laughs> trying to work out who these people were. So uh, I think mischief, a sense of mischief, if you don't like mischief, and I do worry about the workplace, I worry about kind of highly politically correct cultures. I do worry about the what you might call is the unintended consequences for general mischief. Yeah. You know, beneficial and you know generally high-minded and 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 correct as those ideals may be. The we're in danger of throwing out a kind of creative baby with the you know the, the 1980s bathwater. 
if you like. Yeah. You know, if, if you look at the kind of practical jokes we would play in an ad agency creative department in 1980, they get you hauled up in front of HR now. That 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 kind of scares me a bit. You know. Yeah. I guess I guess it's as long as the person at the end of the joke you know isn't at the end of the joke because they're a woman or because they're a minority or anything like that and it's like you know equally distributed mischief i guess in fairness equally yeah. distributed because it was about a 50 percent female department even back then we were always yeah. a, you know ogilvy and to its credit was into this stuff before it even became fashionable and part of the reason was that david ogilvy had previously been a bit of a you know curmudgeon and yeah. you know but he noticed that his mother, his mother was inordinately mo- mo- happier once she started going back to work after the children were a certain age. And yeah. he'd noticed that and noticed how, how valuable it had been. And so ha- went through, all credit to him, a complete about turn on that. Okay. And so, you know, Ogilvy, is, I, I, I think every single division of Ogilvy in the time I've been there has had a female boss for pretty much as much time as it's been run by males actually yeah so ogilvy was a little bit ahead of the curve of that and the other thing about it was it was it was quite quite classy and yeah. as a result it wasn't laddish now there were pockets yeah. of laddishness and that's yeah. okay by the way you know you know having little pockets of you know that can be you know that you know but it was it never had an overwhelmingly laddish culture and do you think or do you worry that the kind of creative person that you are is less, I guess, less visible, less invited into these organizations now. And it's more of that it kind of thinks along the same economic model as everybody else kind of person. That industry has done something really, very stupid, which is it buries the creative people behind account people. So it's almost like keeping your product off the shelves. And what I found, and this is a really interesting discovery, and when you talk about, you know, one of the great problems with business is it's become very siloed. And yeah. it's all businesses which shouldn't be modeled on the process model of mass production have ended up unknowingly acquiring kind of tailorist principles of kind of, you know, which are, which are optimized for mass production. They're optimized for the continual production of identical objects, which we're painting on that business because everything's different. Right. Yeah. Every context is different. And because of this silo effect, I discovered that when you talk about marketing, people say, go and talk to the marketing director. But if you talked about behavioral economics or behavioral science or the science of human behavior, chief executives were absolutely fascinated by this stuff. It was like catnip. I shouldn't be giving this away. But we've made this mistake in marketing in allowing us to be siloed in a Marcoms department. We haven't been paid on commission since 1989. But we've become siloed in this kind of Marcoms department where the creative people kind of do the, where the people do the coloring in when the application for creative psychologically led solutions is probably particularly partnered with technology might be 10 times greater than it was 20 years ago and yet we're behaving in this incredibly narrow way and we've spent too much time focusing on what we do and too much too little time asking what's the wider target audience what's the wider consumer market for what we actually do and i think i think the potential market for ad agency thinking at its best is much much bigger than we we've ever realized yeah and i wonder so this goes back to the to the um point you made about eurostar and I, I think this is probably more true of governments, is like there's a significant risk averseness now, right? If anything goes wrong, if we spend any amount of money and it goes wrong, or we experiment and it goes wrong, you know, 
the the parties are terrified that there's going to be something in the Daily Mail about how you know they've wasted yeah. this this money on that. And so this was something that I talked to David Epstein about when we were talking about range. We we're talking about like different ways of education, and we definitely don't know the right way to. He's to right. He's children. right. By the way, uh, David Epstein, and uh, undoubtedly, yeah. which is that you know actually, funnily enough, it's a member of the Glasgow Jewish community. David Ricardo, if I'm right, because David Ricardo's idea of comparative advantage and the whole idea of, you know, gains to scale uh, and the, and the, I suppose, the Adam Smith point about pin making and division of labor. Okay. It's kind of, it's it's emphatically true in manufacturing. Although, interestingly, the Japanese now look for division of labor by team rather than by individual, by the way. Yeah. So there's some really interesting work in evolutionary biology about this, which is if you breed from the be- if, if you have hens in cages, if you breed from the best laying hens, it's a disaster. Okay. They actually turn sort of slightly psychotic and attack the other chickens in the cage. Okay. Okay. So a top laying hen within a cage, maybe a top laying hen within a cage because it's not very nice to the other hens right? If you breed from the most productive cages and you replicate the most productive groups rather than the most productive individuals, you get a continuous and reliable uh, increase in uh, laying, right? And I think, you know, I think what's happened is this division of labor fetish has essentially created, what's the opposite of creativity, okay? Actually, the opposite of creativity is probably bureaucracy. A useful, as a useful kind of, you know, oppositional thing, because bureaucracy is you do the same thing regardless of the circumstances and that you obey preordained rules regardless of context and you're incapable of, you believe those rules are somehow incapable of improvement or change. And the, I mean, it, it interests me a lot that because one of the things I do have, I think, as a creative mentality is I have an unbelievable intolerance of bureaucracy. Yeah, it, it drives me, you know, any kind of bureaucratic process, particularly when it's very much misaligned with what people find easy, attractive to do, drives me fucking nuts. I, I, I mean, to a pathological extent. I mean, literally, yeah. I can't I couldn't do my tax return if you put a gun to my head. <laughs> and so there's something interesting there because someone else pointed out something which is business often talks about best practice which is a dangerous phrase to use because a best assumes it's incapable of improvement and b it's singular not plural because actually what you're looking for in a in a in a system is better practices plural and the idea that you optimize a system by individually optimizing the 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 preordained processes which constitute the system without reference to anything else is a fundamental flaw in understanding. Yeah. It's a fundamental flaw in the understanding of systems thinking, which is possibly one of the values of comedy in evolutionary terms, which is it causes you to break out from that and say, why don't we just do this? I mean, I had a crazy... There's a guy trying to persuade people to have heart scans in the US, okay. right? And it was lovely because in the conversation, he said, I'm so glad I talked to you because I never would have come up with that. Now, I don't believe that. I think we could have helped. <laughs> but I said, I said, how long does the scan take? He said, the scan itself is about 10 seconds right? And you don't have to take your clothes off. You don't have to take your shoes off, right? Nothing like that. Oh, right. Now, I said something he'd never occurred of to to him, which is, so it's actually easier than going through airport security. You can get a 99% reliable health test for less hassle than it takes to just get to get from landside to airside in an airport. I never would have thought of making that comparison. You know, he's a doctor, you know, maybe that's not their job. You know, I don't want my doctor to be wildly experimental. Let's be honest (laughs) about this, right? Okay. I do want him to have some sort of evidence base. But then I said, then I just had a crazy idea, but it's not totally crazy when you think about it. So I said, so it's a lot better than going to the DMV, right? And 
Americans, I, we don't quite have the same relationship. Americans yeah. really, really hate the DMV. And then this totally crazy idea occurred to me, which is, why don't you park your van outside the DMV? You've got to pay for this scan. Okay. But you say, you have a 10-minute scan, and then you can sit down and watch television. While you're having your scan, we'll pay someone to go into the DMV and do your paperwork in the DMV. So you catch people at a moment where you go, shit, I'm going to be sitting here waiting for 40 minutes. What can I do? Well, yeah. for 100 dollars I can get a health scan and avoid that whole pain. Yeah, perfect. And we'll make you a latte or whatever. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Now, I mean, the point is that so much of optimized thinking is context. What intelligent bureaucrats are trying to do, what educated bureaucrats are trying to do, is to create context-free rules. Yeah. Okay, because that enables them to sit at the top of an organization and make generalizable decisions and impose decisions downwards. 90% of real life outside a fucking factory is context dependent. I mean, this is why I get bothered about the humor that, you know, John Cleese complains about it. You know, even pretty left wing comedians get slightly bothered by the culture of kind of woke culture and deplatforming and things, because it's a fundamental failure to understand the fact that the the context of a comedy club is in you know, which you have chosen to enter is yeah. fundamentally different in terms of what you're allowed to say to what you're allowed to say at a funeral right you know we just understand this instinctively that we have different rules you know different rules it's why giving a best man speech is actually very very difficult because you've got to be risque enough for the 27 year olds in the audience without actually causing the you know the 78 year olds to have a coronary yeah, so okay, it's a very, very different, you know, it's a very, very difficult thing. But we understand that context. You know, we understand that. Yeah, but I, I think yeah. that's why the, the most successful companies now um, encourage innovation. So like I work, my, my day job, I work at Amazon and, you know, Jeff Bezos, you know, is very much a proponent of, of risk taking and experimentation. Everybody tried to stop him doing Amazon Prime. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, and and then I was reading something a couple of days ago, which was about how Elon Musk celebrates innovation at, at Tesla. So if someone is failing to innovate in a role, this is from Tesla, where innovation should be happening, they should either not be promoted or exited. If failure is not an option, it will result in extremely conservative choices. What you yep. really want is reward and punishment to be proportionate to the actions you seek. Well, we've created in, we've created incentives which reward and failure. Yeah. over time far more generously than they do spectacular success interspersed with occasional failings they had an innovation division in a very very large consumer goods company yeah. and you were selected for that division if you'd proven yourself very successful your early career yeah. and they discovered that the very success in your early career created exactly the wrong kind of mental frame because these yeah. people having basically been fast-tracked for the top were now terrified of cocking up and of course for r&d that you know where even if you're a total genius you know i mean i don't know you know edison you know, had more failures than successes by far. And some of his ideas were totally whack, right? Yeah. It's completely the wrong mindset for one in which you're trying to innovate, not replicate. And then so my question to you would be how, and I think this is from like a, a more public policy standpoint, right? So the government needs to innovate, but it's you know definitely terrified of being raked over the coals in the press. So how do we make the general populace, or is there a way to make the general populace more accepting of failure when it comes to public policy and you know taxpayers' money. Yeah, that's a that that is actually because undoubtedly the Daily Mail and actually journalists we often blame social media for a lot of malaises, but actually yeah. journalism is actually in many ways more guilty. And journalists are kind of horrible people. 
by which I mean is they're relentlessly negative. They're all trying to be Woodward yeah. and Bernstein. I was yeah. very surprised when I first went into the Houses of Parliament to discover a bunch of people sitting around a table from a variety of political parties trying to solve a problem as best they could. I never realised, I thought it was a kind of entirely a kind of contact sport. And their interest in portraying everything as, you know, the very criticism of U-turns, you know, when the facts yeah. change, you change policy. It's a perfectly yeah. sane thing to do. And we're living in a constantly changing world in which consistency is actually evidence of stupidity. Yeah. <clears throat> and so that journalistic business where they're essentially uh, looking for the worst you can say, and also putting a story in its, its most negative light. Uh, and I noticed this because I remember being in the cabinet office once, and I made a suggestion, which quite a lot of the time to get to bright sunlit up lands of a new and rich territory, yeah. you have to cross through what I call the veil of silliness, you know, yeah. you know. And so I said, look, if you actually made higher rate tax paying something of a status good, okay, instead of framing tax as punitive, this is a point, by the way, made by a guy, Acoff at Berkeley, that the language you use, the very fact that we use the phrase tax relief is yeah. a mistake because it's framing tax as punishment almost, as a punitive thing, rather than something you should be pleased to pay in return for the services that you provision thereby. Okay. Now, I'm not suggesting we're ever going to be happy to pay more, but I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, you, the fact that you can't say, I'd like 1% extra to go to the NHS and get a car sticker seems a bit weird to me. You know, that would be a pretty good value exchange, right? But I just said, as a kind of Adland joke, so higher rate taxpayers should be allowed to drive in bus lanes, you see. And <laughs> Obviously, I didn't mean that to become yeah. policy, right? It was just a wacko suggestion. And what I couldn't understand was the reaction in the room was sheer fucking white knuckle terror. Absolute <laughs> paranoid fear, which was basically, how can I get out of here as fast as I possibly can? And it occurred to me that all it takes is one story in the Daily Mail saying the government's proposing to allow fire rate taxpayers to drive in bus lanes, which was yeah. my point was it was the first silly manifestation of a possibly useful idea. Because yeah. a lot of a lot of valuable ideas arrive first in silly form. You know, I bet Edward Jenner was saying, I bet Edward Jenner was basically going, so all we need to do is to get everybody to become a milkmaid and then smallpox will go away. Right. And yeah. you had some fantastic vision of 18th century portly gentlemen milking cows. Right. OK. And then you realize there's actually a better way of doing the same silly thing. I'm also very pro anecdote. I know in science, anecdotal is the worst thing you can say. But most really, really important information emerges first in anecdotal form. The first glimpse of something you get, which you need to pay attention to is, did you realize that? Da -da -da -da. Oh, okay. That's why we love gossip and why we love anecdotes is because it's okay. early warning. It's not because the information is particularly relevant or, or robust. It's because it tells us where we need to pay more attention in future. It's a chronological path dependent thing. The love of the anecdote, you see. It's yeah. not that the anecdote itself has value because it, as information goes, but it says maybe I ought to have a little bit more of a look over there. You know, yeah. I've heard there's rustling in the undergrowth. Right. You know, that's how we survive. And so humor is in the same way. But the terror in that room was unbelievable to behold. And I realized that all they needed is, you know, they'd have a minister shouting at them. If it got in the Daily Mail, the whole thing would be blown yeah. up out of proportion. And the problem is you've got a bunch of Oxford, Oxford journalists who've studied PPE. Right. OK. They were all at fucking Oxford with the politicians. They think they should be doing their job. And a hell of a lot of political journalism is just the continuation of Oxford University rivalries through other means. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, and the extent to which, you know, that, you know, you have this hideous kind of political 
cast of PPE graduates. So, you know, it's like the French NRK system. They're just polluting. Uh, they're just yeah. polluting the body politic. Frankly, I think what you can see is like literally the debating rivalry. So they go from like the debating houses of their public school to the debating houses of like the universities to the houses of parliament, and never much interacting with real life or real businesses. What you do at Amazon, by the way. I'm intrigued. So I work at AWS and I work with tech startups. So before before Amazon, I was in a bunch of startups, did my own as well. I was the first employee for Uber in the UK. But then when we were having our, our second kid, I needed a little bit more stability. And Amazon has this team within AWS that, that works with startups. Um, yeah, I was, funnily enough, the odd thing is I went into this business knowing all about the internet because at university in the 1980s, my brother was an astrophysicist. So I used to blag time from his login probably illegally. And yeah, the tragedy was I failed to make any money for it because I spent my time, I spent my time in the 1980s, in the late 80s going, I've been on this thing called Usenet and it's fucking fantastic. It's going to change the yeah. world. And everybody went, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. my tragedy actually was I was too early yeah. because by the time it got big, I got bored of evangelizing it <laughs> to some extent. So it was kind of strange. I mean, I think if I discovered it in 1994, I did, yeah. you know, I did download whatever the browser was called from Netscape, the uh, Barna Shaban. There was, there was one mosaic, wasn't it? It was the first one. I might have mosaic, downloaded yeah. that. And I was kind of, you know, and actually you can be too early, by the way. I mean, you know, I was of unlucky course. then two ways in a, in a way, but no, I mean, that's certainly the mentality, which is there's a brilliant startup guy who says this. Now I always got a bit pissed off when I heard this, because I'd said something similar, but not as good. And <laughs> this guy had said it, which is find the assumptions in any business category, make a list of yeah. all the assumptions, right? Because all business categories become riddled with assumptions. Yeah. As I said, you know, you know, the assumption that 50% extra free is, you know, a reduction yeah. in price, as I said. Okay. Then make a list of the ones that either aren't true or won't be true in two years' time. Now yeah. you've got yourself a new business. And that's yeah. essentially how capitalism works. It's essentially people in, in academia, you've got to be right. In business, you've got to find somebody else who's wrong. Yeah. Effectively. Or be right at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it is worth remembering of all those tech people in that there were basically two generations of them. You know, if you look at the people who founded Oracle, Apple, Microsoft, they were all born in about the same two-year period. And then yeah. there was a second kind of social media explosion with a bunch of people who were all born around the same time. And of course, you realize that, of course, if Bill Gates had been born four years earlier, he would have ended up working for IBM. And if he'd been born four years later, he would have ended up working for whoever would have founded what would have been Microsoft if it had been founded by someone else. Yeah, no, there's a, like, there's a huge amount of luck and timing and all sorts that go into this stuff. And, you know, a business that was founded, you know, one year or two years before, like one that's very similar and, and then took off, you know, it, it will fail because it has to be kind of at the right time. And that's one of the questions that the best like venture capitalists ask of, of potential investments is like, why now? The one that really interests me, and it's a lovely story because I met this guy and I genuinely mean, I'm not just saying this because of subsequent events. So I'm sitting next to a guy in the front row. We're both speaking at some conference. I can't remember what it was potentially. And we're both chat. And we're both chat. Um, and I, I, I meet this guy who's, I think, their head legal counsel at Cisco. And I remember thinking, what an incredibly nice guy. 
you know, this guy is not only, you know, not only, you know, this is not just by legal, by legal, by the standards of lawyers, he was, you yeah. know, practically St. <laughs> Francis of Assisi, okay. But by anybody's standards, he was both incredibly intelligent and incredibly nice. And a couple of days ago, I thought, I wonder what happened. Okay. And I Googled it, and he was the first investor in Zoom. Okay, nice. <laughs> so I think he's fine. I think he's fine. I think, I think we can I, safely say, yeah. He's doing okay, yeah. But the interesting thing is that that was an incredibly difficult investment because everybody assumed it was overcrowded. Now, the reason I don't grudge him his billions, okay, is that the rational reasons not to invest in a paid-for video conferencing product, yeah. okay, at the time Zoom started were seemingly immense because you're up against Facebook, you're up against Microsoft, you're up against Microsoft had bought Skype for billions, yeah. okay? And so... Interestingly, he invested in Eric at Zoom simply because he knew Eric and thought he was one of the rare people who understood technology and understood marketing and, and how you bring something to market. And he invested in him without even asking for any information about what Eric was proposing to do. But what's interesting about that is that it, it's, it really, really interests me because, it, I mean, it really fascinates me because all the conventional logic would have said, you know, you're up against Google, Apple. Microsoft, Facebook, every single tech giant has some sort of vi video platform. Yeah. Okay. What makes you think that you can win? And yet it still did. And yeah. I think there's something really, really interesting about this. I think there's, a, I don't think it's been written, but I think there's definitely a story to be written of how Microsoft lost, like how Skype had such a head start and they completely lost their way. And I think the, the genius with Zoom is that you don't need to be logged in. You just click a link. And with Skype, you need to have a username, you need to be logged in. There's another detail from a B2B perspective, which is yeah. I would know, if you think about the context in which a B2B video link might be established, okay? Yeah. I would no more dial on a Skype the chief executive of Rolls-Royce Aero Engines, for example, right? Yeah. Okay. I would no more just ring him up on video on his desk, not knowing what he was up to, than I would dress up in a clown costume and jump into his office shouting, surprise, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> it's a completely socially inept thing to do. And so the, the model of the, the, the psychological model of a single link to join and the fact that it was a meeting room model, not a phone call model was instrumental, yeah. I think. But I think, it, I think it's very, and I think there's also a question to be asked, which is that this business of large tech companies, you know, you have the thing minimal vi minimum viable minimal product. Okay, yeah. okay. Well, I think what a lot of large tech companies do is they do the opposite. It's what I call maximal non-viable product, okay? Yeah. Which is it's good enough to prevent anybody else establishing themselves in the space without actually being world-changing. Yeah. And all those things, FaceTime, you can only FaceTime when you've got an iOS device for fuck's sake, right? <laughs> okay. Who, you know, I mean, I mean, I know that, you know, early days, I think there were people who, you know, there was obviously the battle between Edison and uh, Westinghouse to try and yeah. establish an electrical standard. Okay. And I think, you know, obviously you had Bell wouldn't allow you to fit anybody's equipment to the network. Okay. But we should have known enough about network products to know that you have to make them universal access to have yeah. any hope of growth and scale. And so, you know, I mean, I mean, FaceTime really deserves, you know, it's shameful. Okay. But all of those things were like good enough to prevent anybody investing in a competitor, which is after all the interest of those tech giants. They're terrified of someone establishing a new platform business. Okay. Yeah. Now, in fairness, okay, Google, I could accuse Google Maps of that. I could accuse Alexa of that. But they are actually fairly good. 
right? Okay, yeah. Let, you know, let's be honest about it, okay? They're actually pretty good. Google Maps, I can't think of ways in which they could be better. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, actually, I, I could, for fuck's sake, put the scale on the map and put which way up is, no, you know, put the fucking scale and the, you know, obey yeah. the basic laws of cartography, for God's sake, right? But, you know, in the case of something like email, I could sit down with you and we could design in 20 major improvements to an email client yeah. in a day, okay? And they haven't done that. And I think yeah. that's because of what I call, it's it's not a minimum viable product, it's maximal non-viable product. As good, as good enough to prevent anybody else coming in, but yeah. not so good you actually change people's behavior very much. You make an interesting point, particularly with Google Maps. So there, there was space for a competitor with Google Maps, and it was Waze. And, and they you bought know, it. And, and they bought it. Yeah. And, you know, for the founders of Waze, that's amazing. They get a billion-dollar exit. That's that's incredible. But then, I guess, and it's also kind of around the, the thinking of, of investors. So if you told if anybody tried to create an e-commerce company 10 years ago it, like nobody was funding it right which was because of amazon my you know my employer but then yep. shopify comes around and they're not necessarily an e-commerce company it came from something that wasn't silicon valley it came from ottawa in canada and it came at e-commerce in a kind of different route and so you know all those things helped it, it helped it kind of grow and there's you know great uh, podcast with, with reed hoffman interviewing uh, toby the, the ceo of shopify about that but like i think if you if you think everything is taken then you're not looking at kind of all of the niches and that's what you know entrepreneurs do and that's why I, I love helping them in my day job you you talk about brand in, in in alchemy and kind of in reference to the hoverboards that people used to have you know a couple of years ago yeah and and there was no brands and that's why people didn't really trust them you know there was a couple of stories about fires uh, taking place. <laughs> One of them caught fire, yeah. so we rejected the whole category. We didn't, you see, they weren't even branded by the manufacturer. The branding yeah. was done by the importer. If Panasonic or Samsung had produced a hoverboard, I would have been there with my fucking credit card day one. <laughs> Okay, yeah. because there's someone with sk reputational skin in the game who's producing a hoverboard. Yeah. As it happened, two of them caught fire while recharging and set someone's Christmas tree on fire. The whole category died. Another interesting one would be a timeshare. My contention yeah. about timeshare is that it was such a good idea that it was very, very profitable. And yeah. being very profitable, the first people to move in were not reputable brands, as you might have expected, but actually a bunch of crooks and shysters who yeah. spotted this was a way to... There aren't many ways of milking an ordinary punter out of 20 grand but boy yeah. you can do that with a dodgy timeshare right but so my question around brands was in the last you know three four five years there's been like an explosion in kind of direct to consumer brands right from everything from mattresses to shoes to you know whatever and these are brand new companies so how is it possible for them to create brands that people trust very quickly where they're okay to buy it you know off the internet and and a mattress thing they're going to sleep on and see what it's like well they they offer they offer returns so okay. this is really all about the market for lemons, a paper written by George Akerlof, which is how markets can valuable markets can fail to exist because of information asymmetries and a lack of trust. I have to talk about the market for lemons and Joloff and, you know, and Gresham's law and all this stuff, which is what was probably happening with those hoverboards is that the bad was driving out the good, you see, yeah. because without a brand, consumers cannot punish the bad and reward the good. So the yeah. fundamental feedback mechanism of free market does not exist without branding yeah okay interesting brands actually weird brands started to exist in the soviet union you tried to buy a car that was manufactured on a wednesday okay, okay. and so there was a wednesday car now they all have the same ostensible brand there was a a, a chocolate bar somewhere like romania where i yeah the, the people said 
go and look under the flap and if it's produced by factory B, it'll be a lot better than the ones produced by factory A and factory C. So that was a form of consumers creating brands themselves. In, in the Lada or Moscovich car industry, you wanted to buy a Wednesday car. And the reason was on Mondays, everybody was still pissed from the weekend. And on Fridays, everybody was desperately trying to meet their target for the week. So the only cars that were likely to be produced with any sort of quality were the ones produced on a Wednesday. Yeah. Might have been a Tuesday, but it was one of those two. Yeah. And so what we're looking for is reliable indicators of non-shitness, okay? Yes. Now, if you don't have reliable... It's not, it's not that brands are a, a reliable proxy for perfection, okay? Yeah. If I buy a Samsung tablet, it won't necessarily be the best tablet I can buy with 400 bucks or whatever, okay? Yeah. yeah. But I know for sure it won't be a crock of shit. It'll be somewhere between pretty good and spectacular. In the book, you're talking, you talk about the, the main reasons that human behavior departs from rationality, you know, signaling, subconscious hacking, satisficing, and uh, psychophysics. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about those and kind of why those ones are in particular, or why human behavior departs from what we might think of as rational. Um, I mean, there are many cases. First of all, I think we're wrong about what people are trying to do. And there's a lot of work in everything from work in everything from ergodicity economics, which is a bunch of pretty high-powered physicists effectively investigating the maths of economics and finding that it made a wrong turn by not spotting something that physicists spotted in the 19th century, which is that under multiplicative dynamics over time, if you want to optimize your growth rate, the ensemble outcome is not the same as the time series outcome. And therefore, people often in their decisions are trying to minimize variance rather than to optimize the expected value of each standalone decision. Okay. OK, now, the reason that's important is that it explains loss aversion and a lot of things, not in psychological terms, but in purely mathematical terms, which is that very bluntly put, there's no difference between one plus three, two plus two and um, uh, and three plus one. But there is a difference between naught times four, one times three and two times two. And under multiplicative yeah. dynamics, you want to minimize the variance much more than you want and, and minimize downside risk much more energetically than you would do under additive dynamics okay. okay so that's one important distinction where in many cases people pay a premium for brands because they recognize them as a reliable and heuristic for making a non-catastrophic decision if you buy heinz beans uh, and by the way fame is quite an interesting thing because it's difficult to fake it either means you've invested in making yourself famous or you've been around for a long time and are talked about widely and a lot of people buy you in which case social proof for example the fact that a lot of people buy Heinz beans is not evidence that Heinz beans are the best beans you can buy, but they're fairly reliable evidence that the, the beans won't be shit. Okay, <laughs> so 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 in that sense, I think we often misunderstand brands. We look at brands as though they're being pursued and valued by people who are in an optimizing mode, trying to make each decision economically optimal, whereas what we're really trying yeah. to do is avoid making any catastrophically bad decisions. And as a result, I think we also make the mistake of comparing brands to other brands too much because there's not that much difference in terms of my degree of reassurance when I'm buying a Philips TV or a Samsung TV. But there's a very, very big difference between what I'm prepared to pay to have a Philips or Samsung TV as distinct from a Zogu TV from someone I've never heard of. So that that that's important in a sense in that we're wrong about what people are perfectly rationally trying to do. And they're, you know, we're wrong about rationality because of not yeah. understanding that 
conflict between additive and multiplicative dynamics. And so that's one important component. Fame also, wider fame and familiarity and social proof and breadth of purchase. If you had to buy to move to Jamaica tomorrow, okay, and you had to buy a car before you arrived, okay, the probably the best question you could ask to avoid a catastrophic decision would be what's the best selling car in Jamaica? Okay, to avoid making, you know, an, an absolutely awful decision. And so quite a lot of human behavior, we've misrepresented what is rational. And therefore, we regard quite a lot of kind of consumer behavior as being irrational. And we we regard brand preference as irrational. When looked at through a different lens, it's perfectly sensible. I always love the story, by the way, about multiplicative dynamics, which is a guy called, I don't know if you ever watched Life is Toff. And it was about a family, posh Devon family, and the head of the family was a chap called Francis Fucker Fulford. And he was called Fucker Fulford because he was unbelievably sweary. But one of the things Fucker Fulford said is they're quite remarkable (laughs) because they're the family that's probably been in continuous occupation of the same patch of land for longer than anybody else in Europe, if you exclude royal families and so forth. And I think something like... King John or Richard I awarded Francis Fulford 2,000 acres of, of land in Devon and a house in something like 12, whatever it was. Okay. And they've been in continuous occupation ever since, and they still have 2,000 acres and admittedly a new house. And they asked him, How is it, you know, you've managed to do this? And he sort of points up at the ancestral portraits and he said, I've had some absolutely appalling ancestors alcoholic fuckers, <laughs> philandering fuckers, fuckers who dabbled with Catholicism at the wrong moment <laughs> in history. He said, But there's one important thing. He said, We've never had two fuckers in a row because, you know, every time there's been an alcoholic or a gambling addict, you know, he's been then succeeded by a completely responsible person who's like the Archbishop of Mysore in the 19th century, who then rebuilds them again. And it's two fuckers in a row that kill you in many cases (laughs) under multiplicative dynamics. And it's a very, very good story that explains that that distinction, which I don't think, because if you think about it, the idea that utility is an additive function is a pretty bold yeah. mathematical assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Happiness isn't like that. Is it? We've all known, I mean, let's be honest about this. We've all known friends who like get divorced, lose their license. And, you know, you know, they lose their license, they get divorced, they have an extra round. If you have three or four disasters and in close succession, it's much more yeah. disruptive to your life than four of them a few years apart. So understanding that, I think, is really important because in marketing, our first job is a, re- is a better and nuanced understanding of what people are really trying to do and what they're trying to do when they buy a brand we emphasize too much this idea of you know too much this idea of the idea of optimization perfect value for money because we're heavily weighted towards reliable signals of non-crapness now i mentioned signaling okay which is quite a lot of what we're trying to do appears irrational except when you realize what it says about us to other people which in evolutionary yeah. terms has a very major bearing on our success you know people's ability to trust us it's my father used to who's very rational too rational man i suspect i'm you know of, of, again like you of uh, scottish origin and occasionally he'd get he'd say why is it that my accountant needs to have an office in town and a bloody brand new bmw and all that stuff i'm paying for that stuff why can't i just go to a chap who's an accountant in a shed you know and pay for the accountancy (laughs) not for the accoutrement okay and the truth of the matter is that you don't really trust an accountant in a shed he needs the kind of office space and the evidence of past success and the fact that he's valued by his clientele and so forth that we need some of that 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 sort of 
bling as just evidence of trustworthiness that I've got skin in the game. I've got a lot to lose here. I, you know, and so yeah. you know, you you know, in the same way, I always give the example of signalling. If you turn up outside someone's house, okay, and you're thinking of buying their second-hand Ford Mondeo, and you look at the Ford yeah. Mondeo parked in the drive, and you think, yeah, I might go to three grand for that one. Okay, and so you ring on the doorbell to talk to the guy. Now, in one world, in one universe, the door's opened by a vicar, and in the other universe, okay, the door's opened by a guy in his underpants. Right now, I'm pretty willing to bet that in the first situation you might go up to three thousand five, and in the second situation your maximum highest bid drops to about two grand because yeah. someone's evident effort of someone's reputational fragility. You don't have to believe in God, by the way. You don't even have to believe yeah. the vicar believes in God. In fact, you simply have to know that vicars would take a bigger reputational hit from selling a dodgy motor with a gearbox full of sawdust than a guy in his underpants. That you have yeah. a certain reputation to maintain as a practicing vicar that requires you to main, you know, manifest probity in your dealings. Whereas a guy who's answering the door in his underpants doesn't care what his neighbors think of him, so he's not really going to care how much you're, you know, uh, you're bothered by being sold a totally lemonish dodgy car and so you know appearing to care care about our own reputation in some shape or form or demonstrating that we've willingly invested in our reputation is if you like a trust driving mechanism but then there's all the other yeah. signaling stuff like sexual attractiveness and you know there's a wonderful one a wonderful blog called the humanitarians of tinder which shows people <laughs> on you know people's tinder photographs where they're kind of caring for african orphans and so forth to yeah. demonstrate demonstrate desirable mate qualities the interesting thing about signaling is even if we you know economists and whatever didn't understand it for a long time the people that did understand it were criminals right oh, absolutely people like bernie madoff yeah. knew exactly what he had to show people to get them to believe that he was the most successful fund manager and had these reliable returns and you know anybody doing a ponzi scheme or anything like that they t even if they don't know the word for it they madoff was clever in a couple of ways actually i mean one of which was a bit of a double bluff which is that People thought what he was doing was front-running, but they still wanted yeah. in. So they thought that his past experience as head of the whatever it was gave him some unfair advantage over other investors, which made his returns believable, okay? He yeah. wasn't play playing by the same rules. But he'd also turn people away. He'd say, I'd love to accept your $50 million, but I'm afraid I'm, you know, I, I really can't. You know, yeah, and that yeah. made people, he knew perfectly well that the one thing super rich people aren't used to is being told no. And if there's anything that makes super rich people desperate to want to buy something, it's actually being told they can't have it. Yeah. And so all he had to do is wait until they came back with 700 million. And there's a lovely one, a lovely bit of reverse marketing in a way, which is the Bristol Car Company, you know, which has that showroom on the totally niche car manufacturer, has that showroom on Kensington yeah. High Street, I think it is. And a, and a fairly newly enriched friend of mine went there to buy one and he looked around and uh, he said yeah i'm really quite interested in getting one of these maybe you know this year or next and they said do you have a garage sir and he said no i don't actually i'm thinking of building one but i haven't got one at the moment and he said well i'm afraid perhaps you'd like to come back when you've built a garage because unless you've got a reasonable <laughs> garage we wouldn't be prepared to sell it to you now you know that's either insanity or genius. There is there is a school yeah. of thought that says that actually women's high-end fashion boutiques buy hire skinny and rude, patronizing, posh sales staff because people just people you treat 
people in an offhand way and they go, I'll fucking show you. And they show that <laughs> yeah. person by spending two grand on a bag. That yeah. actually being really charming and desperate is a less effective way of selling high end handbags than appearing to brush someone off. Yeah, that's really interesting. I get like it makes sense. So it's all about this business that costly signaling sometimes requires experience. Then I mentioned psycho hacking, I think, which is that there's an awful lot of stuff we do, which is just mood changing drugs in a different form. Fat the fashion industry. Yeah. It's not really. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, there's a bit of fashion, which is there signaling to other people. Okay. There's, yeah. you know, there's a bit of fashion which is signaling to a, and a surprising target audience. So female fashion is not really about being attractive to men because that's quite easy to do. Okay. There's, you know, there's an element of that going on. But actually what you're signaling to, you might be signaling to other females or you might be just signaling to yourself, which is that fashion enables you to feel a form of confidence in a social setting, which you can't will into being. Okay, just as you can't control yeah. your heart rate or your blink rate, there are certain things like your mood, which you can't consciously control, but you can hack that mechanism by putting on makeup, for example, or you can yeah. hack that mechanism by wearing particularly good clothes. There's some, you know, what, what was it? There's, there's also obviously what I'm psychophysics, which is the fact that uh, satisfying I've mentioned. Psycho, psychophysics yeah. is simply the fact that we don't perceive rationality, we don't perceive the the environment in objective terms. So that quite a yeah. lot of things where if people prefer X to Y, it may be an example I give, for example, is that you're much, you're probably happier if you fly on a plane and it's it's delayed by 40 minutes, but there's a sign in departure saying BA246 yeah. delayed 40 minutes. You're basically pretty chill with that. If you actually have a 20 minute delay and you have to spend 20 minutes where the departure board simply says delayed, you're much, much more stressed. Yeah. And that's because a boringly rational person would look at the correlation between punctuality and customer satisfaction when actually there's a confounding variable there, which is uncertainty is the real source of dissatisfaction, not uh, chronological delay. So, you know, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of things like that. You know, we perceive things comparatively. I'm totally happy buying Nespresso capsules, but I wouldn't dream of spending the same amount of money on coffee that came in a jar. Because when I buy yeah. the capsules, I compare it to Starbucks and a 40p coffee yeah. seems perfectly reasonable. If I bought it in a jar, I'd be comparing it to Maxwell House and it would say, you know, a 30, 30 pound jar of coffee would seem insane. And so, you know, understanding the peculiar nature of evolved human epistemology and perception is essential to marketing, I think. Yeah. Since, you know, Kahneman and Tversky came out with their first books, there's been like myriad numbers of books about behavioral economics. You know, you've got everything, you know, uh, the stuff David Epstein wrote. You've got even had the nudge unit that the government had when David Cameron was prime minister, Cass and Sunstein, Thaler. So my question is, do... There has been a massive growth industry, particularly in, in the books of it. So is, is it really a growth industry in terms of are the general populace becoming more educated about this? Or is it just the same group of people that are buying the same books and it's kind of like a small circle that isn't growing that much? I think there is still a group of people, particularly among academic economists, but also elsewhere, who are deeply hostile to it. And it may be they're okay. hostile because they pretend they think it's untrue, whereas really it, op it, it acts as a threat to their dominance of their dominant model of the universe you know i mean people are kind of deeply if you say to people in fulham that fulham is less central than hern hill okay they get deeply upset by this because they have a model of what london is which is modeled on the tube map and actually assault you know as i was saying to someone earlier you know insulting someone's model of the world 
whether it be political or, you know, anything else. Assaulting people's ideology is a bit like insulting their dog. You know, they really take it personally. And uh, so I think I think it's true to say there's a group of people who are still resistant. But I think it's fair to say that the, you know, the academic recognition given to Thaler, Kahneman, Sunstein, etc. And the fact that they cunningly and accidentally branded it behavioral economics rather than psychology, even though it's obviously psychology, has meant that if you now recommend something as a psychological solution, you're not met with quite the same incredulity that you that might have happened 10 15 years ago but i still have my train problem which is you know in in the uh, earlier half of this podcast i talked about my yeah. solution to reducing journey time and increasing capacity on the yeah. west coast main line up to birmingham and manchester and no one has been able to refute the fact that yes this would increase capacity and reduce journey time and yet somehow what i'm doing is regarded as cheap because it operates in, a, I'm looking at it, it's, it's very similar to Ergodisti, actually. The way, the, the dimension by which you look at something affects your yep. perception of, the, of a problem. And so Ergodisti is very important because at a very simple level, which we ought to understand much better, you can have average GDP increasing, you can have an increase in aggregate GDP per head of population in a world where actually everybody's getting poorer over time. Because how we experience life through time is very, yeah. very different, in fact, to the aggregate snapshots which are used for comparison by most economic models. I mean, I'll give you an example. We've got to be very careful when we talk about inequality, because inequality is not an age-independent variable, right? There are people who probably come in at the poorest decile who are trainee barristers, okay? If you're a trainee barrister not from yeah. a rich family, you're probably heavily in debt, Okay, and your earnings are absolutely dismal. Now, nobody feels sorry for trainee barristers or trainee trainee surgeons, for that matter. Okay, might appear to be very poor because we know that they're prompt. You know, the reason they're poor is they've spent a lot of money getting into a position where their future is financially very, very promising. And, you know, I mean, we also see that household wealth statistics are affected by changes in household size. Okay, so we've got to be very careful about this data. Now, what's weird about this is people go, oh, you're just trying to get off the hook and saying that rising inequality isn't a problem. I say, no, 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 no. I'm saying that rising inequality may still and probably still is a huge problem, but you're probably looking for it in the wrong place. Similar things apply, by the way, where averages are highly dangerous in things like ethnic inequality, by the way, because what you know. I, mean, I, I, f- I find the ethnicity debate very, very important because the whole question of diversity and widening opportunity. And by yeah. the way, it's not really about equality of opportunity, which I suspect is unattainable, but actually maximizing the different number of ways through which people can become successful is probably the best you can do, yeah. if I'm being realistic about it. Because actually to achieve complete inequality, you'd have to actually penalize people from a privileged background. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say this. So this is one of the things that I like. I get on my soapbox about, which is the thing that I think would impact inequality and opportunity by far significantly the most is education. Improving the um, education. Yeah. yeah. So I. So I wasn't thinking about the degree level of education. I'm talking about the school, the oh, yeah, primary yeah, yeah, school, yeah. the early stage, early stage yeah. intervention. Could I, be, I think, could be highly important. I think. I mean, you know, 
Yeah. For me, college education, like, so I've got three kids, seven, four, and one. I don't care if they go to university. Like, my good friend didn't go to university. Funny enough, both of mine are at university. And I'm an Oxbridge graduate where I think I'd quite like it if one of them went into NEMPHIL there just to have the experience. But my view is that Oxbridge has become, you know, I kind of, I think I deserve to be there just about. I kind of put my way in a bit, to be absolutely honest. I'm not sure. I'm not sure in a strict meritocracy I would have made it in. But it worries me that the place having become a strict meritocracy is now so weird that the cost of getting there is simply too high and so the philosopher very interesting philosopher at harvard refers to young harvard undergraduates as wounded winners that the price of getting there is so high that there and actually the people i really enjoyed hanging out with at oxbridge as a you know quite a lot of them were also people who maybe shouldn't have been there on strictly academic grounds but were kind of a really interesting and diverse group to hang out with you know there was a mature student who'd run the isle of Wight festivals and been an art deco furniture dealer you know there are a few etonians who are actually you know you can learn a lot from etonians right (laughs) because okay i often (laughs) say you can the 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 hyper sensitive ambitious middle classes are the last people you should try and learn from because most of their effort in life is dedicated to impressing other people in their tribe and therefore they're not really independent thinkers in terms of what they spend their money on or what they do because 90 percent of what they do is signaling to other people like them and the great thing with etonians is if you're that arrogant you can afford to be a bit eccentric and i like the fact actually <laughs> that if you if you went on a road trip with an etonian you know they go oh brilliant there's a little chef we can go and have an olympic breakfast now you know if you came from a middle class background you go we can't possibly stop at the little chef we have to go and get our coffee <laughs> but actually the olympic breakfast okay at little chef is fantastic but it really interests me that the the, the eccentrics and you know one of the things that the you know the art deco furniture dealer told me is one of the things he said which i remember the rest of my life is look if ever you're at a loose end just go to the best hotel in town and order a pot of tea because there's a limit to what they can charge you for a pot of tea and you've got all the facilities and surroundings of a five-star hotel for two pounds which it was back then it's a bit more now but i always remember all these clever little things i wouldn't have thought of doing and so you know the breadth the breadth of the student body in some ways there was a guy there genuinely working class guy he arrived okay and there weren't many genuinely working class people i love the guy okay because he arrived his dad delivered his trunk in the back of his lorry because his dad was a lorry driver he had a mathematical talent which was my brother was a very good mathematician this guy was like off the charts and what he did he was so good at it intrinsically that the cambridge maths tripos morning afternoon morning afternoon two consecutive days i wasn't a mathematician i was a classicist okay this guy used to come back i used to join him okay in between the morning and afternoon of the cambridge maths tripos he used to have a pint to come back to the college and have a pint and my brother who is you know pretty fucking serious on the maths front i can't yeah. believe you're doing that it would never it helps me relax and this guy was brilliant <laughs> i loved him because he was totally working class background didn't care again what people think this is where actually very yeah. posh people and working class people have quite a lot in common because they're in some respects they're less concerned by you know the court of public opinion in terms of their you know yeah. you can have if you're working you can have a shit car you can have a really posh car you can do this you can do that you can go and eat the little chef yeah. you can go and eat in the michelin starred restaurant and you do all of them and i suddenly discovered you have yeah. a much better life eating in both than you do eating in one or the other yeah. because the olympic breakfast this is, this is still pretty damn good you know this is my problem with trying to convince all of my friends who are in that middle class range that, that nando's is actually an exquisite meal 
because I love Hernando's. No, my kids, I don't quite get it, but I like it. No, no, but I agree <laughs> with you. I mean, there are things, for example, I've always said that if you'd never encountered the bacon and egg McMuffin or the sausage and egg McMuffin from McDonald's breakfast anywhere else, and you were first served yeah. it in a Michelin-starred restaurant, you go, oh, God, this is unbelievable. It's off the chart. <laughs> and no, I mean, I agree with you that actually covering the waterfront in dietary terms, you'll have a much more fun time. I know we're running out of time. I don't want to keep keep you even longer on the, on the second time. So I'm going to go to our like this is i've got three kind of quick fire questions so what is something of you know relative importance that you've recently changed your mind on oh that's a great question yeah something actually the most recent one is i've suddenly realized that a lot of urbanism is a cult and we were sort of chatting talking about this earlier but it occurred to me that there's an article actually in vice and i, I was just about write something for The Spectator. Then this article appeared in Vice, which I'll now reference. Now, if Vice yeah. and The Spectator are both agreed on something, there's probably something, because they are at kind of opposite ends of the publishing spectrum in some respect. But Absolutely. it's the idea that actually London's a trap. Yeah. You get into this urbanist trap and you start telling yourself stories about how much you like it. So that's one thing, which is that, but, but I'd always assumed that futurism required ever more high-density living. And I simply and and I noticed that the population of Kent was 1.9 million, and I suddenly went, "Hold on, you can fit loads of people in a fairly rural setting with just a few smaller towns and maybe one big city that's 60 miles away." And actually, yeah. that might be the best way for people to live. You don't need to stack people, and so that'd be one example. Politics, I've become, you know, I'm I highly sympathetic to. I've got a daughter who's a bit of a commie. And I'm a kind of Burkean conservative <laughs> temperamentally. But I realized, look, there's no chance I'm going to convert commie daughter to Burkean conservatism. There's no chance at all. But I buy loads yeah. of books about anarchism because I think anarchism's okay, okay, right? I can cope with having an okay. anarchist daughter. I don't mind that. I just don't want a bloody commie daughter, you know. You know, I don't, I don't want a, you know, is, I don't want a Stalinist daughter. I draw the line. Was she, that. Was she like a Corbyn supporter? Yeah, she was a bit rally. too sympathetic, I think. Although, I mean, he was a much oh, more no. interesting man. I mean, you know, I, would, I obviously didn't drink, so you couldn't have actually had a pint with him. But yeah. the only thing that annoyed me about Corbyn really was, and I think it's why I didn't get elected, was you know, if you spent your life basically siding with everything that isn't Anglo-American, you lose your judgment. Yeah. You know, the fact that he'd fall yeah. in love with any cause which was basically antipathetic to the West, regardless of its yeah. moral foundations or whatever, I, I did find, I did, and hence, I think, you know, the, the anti-Semitism thing, which was probably was yeah. not, I don't think he was anti-Semitic, by the way, I mean, I, personally, I don't, you know, but he would have had a kind of indulgence of that kind of thing, for, you know, for those reasons that you, you can't spend your whole life just being against things. You know, and that forms your worldview. But, yeah, but an interesting guy, and actually not an unpleasant guy. I don't think. I don't. You know. I, I mean. So I don't. I don't. I mean. By the I way, think I think political opposition, you know, is a feature, not a bug. You know, and I think actually, yeah. in fairness to people on the right, I think a lot of people on the centre right kind of go, look, you need to have a kind of antipathetic system because actually creativity arises out of kind of you know, conflict and contrast, you know, and two people yeah. with opposing views might arrive at a much more creative compromise than one person with a dogmatic view would. And what's weird about my life is that actually when I was a kid, the assholes were kind of on the right. Yeah. And actually there are more kind of, you know, there's more kind of moralizing and, you know, sanctimoniousness on the left than there was on the right, which I don't, you know, yeah. in, in the days of kind of Mary Whitehouse, it wasn't really like that. 
no I, I think kind of like on the on the point of politics not to kind of go down like a politics rabbit hole but the problem we have now not so much in the uk but definitely in the us is you don't necessarily have an opposition you have two dogmas yeah. which are rapidly opposed to each other and don't talk they don't try to come a solution because it's not like no, a, no, that, that's how can we make the country sorting with the enemy practically yeah if you yeah, yeah. and as i say because like what you should have you have two you should have two groups of people or or whatever or two two parties who think who are trying to improve the country the best way now they might disagree about the ways to do that but then they come to a solution and, and you know probably the middle way is is going to end up the correct way but in, in the u.s they're so dogmatic and against one another yeah, that they, I, I they cannot compromise possibly i mean you know the mainstream media have been responsible for this but long before yeah. there was social media there was mainstream media and actually the two have played each other off to a degree but i would say about the u.s yeah. that they always talk about the you know it, it problems with democracy the real problem is is with their primary system because i yeah. said at the beginning that trump's going to win that primary OK, it's not because yeah. he's the most favored candidate. It's because he's the most distinctive. And it's kind of gestalt yeah. theory. Right. OK. I mean, weirdly, OK, if I'm not allowed to because I wasn't born in the US. OK. But if I stood against if, if I'd stood instead of Trump in those primaries by some freak parallel universe or you had. <laughs> right. We yeah. probably would have won. Because everybody would have gone, there are a load of guys who are kind of like a bit meh, and then there's British guy yeah. or, you know, Scottish yeah. guy, right? <laughs> and actually, yeah. you know, you know, it, it was perfectly possible, actually, that anybody who'd been in a kind of... Corbyn was going to win that Labour Party leadership for that reason, wasn't he, right? Yeah. Because all of the people on the left and most half can agree on the far left candidate, whereas people in the centre are going to be split between the other three who are, to all intents and purposes, yeah. indistinguishable. And so yeah. there's a whole cho choice architecture question about democracy. You know, the French would have probably, I mean, you know, the French actually have the opposite problem, which is actually, funnily enough, because you always have a runoff between the last two presidential candidates, okay, yeah. you always end up with the least unacceptable candidate as whatever, as president. And in a way, the problem of France, you know, if the problem of Britain is we, you know, or the United States is, you know, you only want so many Thatchers, maybe the problem in yeah. France is they've never had a Thatcher. You know, they've never had a person who just goes, fuck this. I, I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> OK, you know. And again, it's, you know, if if you have three Thatchers in a row, it's a bug. If you have one Thatcher every X years, it's probably a feature, yeah. you know. And occasionally you just need to hit the reset button. It's why I'm, you know, yeah, kind of met on Brexit. I, I, I completely understand the arguments on both sides. I don't understand the hysterical Remainers because they seem not to have made any effort to understand what the countervailing point of view might have been. I mean, if, you know, if 52% of the population feel something, even if they're, they're less able to actually quantify the benefits of their point of view and you know, because really important things aren't really quantifiable, are they? Right. I think you'll get yeah. more creativity from to the response to mass vaccination from different countries yeah. trying different things than centralizing it and, and imposing, you know, a kind of generalized one size fits all solutions across a large range of, of spaces. I always also say that, you know, actually outlier countries, I'm a massive fan of going, if you want innovation, go to Israel, right? Because it's it's a weird country. It's in a very, very, you know, whatever your geopolitics, okay, and whatever your religious affiliation, it's a very, very weird country where you need a lot of ingenuity to make the place work. And it's an outlier. Yeah. And, I, you know, when I went there, I was captivated. I would plan eventually, if there's one country I want to visit for inspiration. My wife's a vicar, so she's also got a to go because she can do all that you know holy land stuff so we you know it's a bit of a win-win i'll be shifting around the you know the tech the, you know the tech meccas of the place and yeah. but but i mean you know outliers are interesting 
okay? Generally, yeah. centralization treats them badly and then destroys their value. Yeah. And like, again, not to kind of like harp on about politics, but the thing that, you know, I'm, I love America. I, yeah, I, me you know, too. I yeah, 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 I do well, you know, yeah. in, the, in the 90s when, you know, it was it was everything. And the thing that, that blew my mind about the primaries in particular, the Republican primaries, was that everybody could tell what Trump was. But all of the people who were on stage with him, those were the people that were in school. They were probably bullied, but their parents said, ignore the bully and they'll go away. Yeah. And so that's what they tried to do to Donald Trump. When what you needed to do to Donald Trump was embarrass him and make him like, so if you'd got on stage and you said, Donald, we know you know that what the what the the fifth amendment is. What was the third? What was the sixth? What was the eleventh? And like show his ignorance and be like, Donald, how is it possible? You must be the dumbest guy in America. You owned a casino and you went bankrupt. You're the only person who's ever owned a casino and gone bankrupt. And like actually embarrassed him. Yeah, he he was he, like he, you he, break the allure. Could have he was so clever he could have turned that kind of thing to his own advantage. Like very possibly, but nobody even tried. He did some he did some brilliantly brilliantly instinctive marketing. That business of eating KFC on a private jet was genius. And the other thing was with him was funnily enough, if you had if Obama hadn't humiliated him at that press thing, I'm not sure he would have stood yeah. for the presidency. Because I remember thinking, yeah, I remember thinking at the time, weirdly. Okay, seeing Obama take the piss out of Trump when he was in the crowd at that press club, whatever it is, they do they do that thing, and it's a bit of a roast. I get the fact that it's in that American yeah. weird tradition where, unusually in very specific situations, it's okay for Americans to be really rude, and the roasting thing is a Hollywood thing. But yeah. I remember thinking, actually, weirdly, although the guy's a billionaire, it's not nice. Okay, it's not nice for someone who's yeah. actually a president to kind of piss on someone that way. I get it. I get the fact that he had the urge to slap back after Trump was a kind of Bertha, right? Okay. Yeah. I, you know, I get the fact, but I, I remember thinking at the time, and I'm someone with a fair old appetite for slightly mean humor. I remember thinking, yeah, yeah. you've overstepped the mark there, actually. And it certainly <laughs> backfired because I'm not sure Trump would have bothered. I'm not sure yeah, he would have bothered with that, that insult, actually. Yeah. I've often okay. that. So we'll go, we'll, we'll go, let's go to the second yeah. question of our, of our quick fire round. So again, podcasts often end with, you know, book recommendations, film recommendations. I'm interested in an anti-recommendation, something that is not worth people's time and that they should avoid. A book, film, TV show, whatever it happens to be. Oh, crikey. Something I, yeah, this is really good because things that are overrated, because I'm always very interested in things that are underrated. You know, music, I was talk, yeah. I was on a music podcast the other week and I said, look, if there's untapped potential, gospel, country and metal, which are the three, okay. the three <laughs> genres of music people are most prone to reject. You know, out of hand. Yeah. You know, yet the best of all three is magnificent. A gospel, give it its due. Okay. The origins of rock and roll and blues and God knows what else yeah. come from gospel. You know, it's church music in the South was the thing. You know, Aretha Franklin comes straight out of that tradition, etc., etc. The uh, things that are overrated that I just don't get. Generally, it's not a great question to ask me because I spend my time trying to look for untapped value in things. Okay. Very large cities, I think, are overrated. We were talking about that at the beginning okay. of the podcast, which is you don't, yeah. to be honest, I'm not sure how much you gain from at a personal level from living in a city that's eight times bigger than a city of one million people or, or half a million people. Yeah. I think there's a law of diminishing returns in very large cities. And I don't think that's been adequately spotted because so many okay. people are forced to work in them and therefore having been forced to live there in order to work there. Now, if you, if you live in Manchester yeah. or Newcastle, right, your house home life can be as urban or rural as you like because the city isn't that difficult yeah. to penetrate. You know, I could live, you know, somewhere north of Newcastle and commute in fairly painlessly. Yeah. If you live in a mega city, you're kind of forced, particularly in the early days you're forced to live in the middle of the goddamn thing and so you yep. can end up in that trap 
So, yeah, I'm always interested in things that people get excited by, which may be a completely misplaced excitement and things that I'm very willing to reject. What would those be? Let me have a think. Because there are, I, I occasionally react, stemmed yeah. wine glasses. You go. That's something that drives me absolutely insane. Because if you want to actually keep the wine at room at the right temperature, you now have double wall wine glasses. You don't need a stem because you can hold it like a normal glass. It's got an absurdly high center of gravity. It doesn't fit in the dishwasher. It's unbelievably fragile. But the reason it survives yeah. is because you have a set of six and they don't all break simultaneously. So nobody ever gets a chance yeah. to rethink their wine glasses. So yeah, what I'm interested okay. in is is bad behaviors that persist because of network effects. And the stem wine glass is merely a model for that. A lot of business travel was like that. Everybody did it because everybody else did it. So, yeah, I am seriously interested in occasions where you have, where individual behavior is principally de determined by the opinions and behaviors of others, which therefore is a limitation to individual freedom. And John Stuart Mill wrote a lot about this. We always think about libertarianism yeah. being all about opposing government restriction. But governments can actually free people by actually freeing them from coordination and uh, biases and from the what. John Stuart Mill would have called the uh, restrictions of popular opinion, of just conventional yeah. opinion. Okay, so I'm going to go into the last question. Yeah. Again, it's been, it's been like incredible to talk to you, find out like what motivates you, but also kind of the, the way your mind thinks as, as much as anybody could get their arms around it. Who else would you like to hear on a podcast like this? Oh, God. There's a new book I've just got, which just arrived. Unfortunately, my daughter's put it away, so I can't find it. But there's a book about empathy. It's communists do that, you yeah, know. Yeah, they do. No, actually, <laughs> funny enough, it was the uh, right-wing daughter who put it away. Um, oh, okay. But I'm... I'm very interested in true, 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 true. Who in the behavioral science world have I never actually? Well, he's no good because he's dead. But behavioral scientists I've read but never heard from George Lowenstein, actually, very interesting guy who's in the behavioral okay. science world. It's a long time since I've heard from him, and I'd like I'd like a catch up. That'd be okay. really, really. Interesting. I will, I will, I will endeavor to get George Lowenstein on, yeah. Lowenstein on the podcast. Fantastic. Okay. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and for talking. And it's been incredible to chat Great to you. Great pleasure. Thank you so, so much. All the best. Thank you. You too.